Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. I'm in New York City in Newsstand Studios here in Rockefeller Plaza, and I wish you were all with me. If you've ever found yourself scouring the internet to find the newest craze that will achieve inner balance, you aren't alone. Self-care is business, big business. In fact, it's a $450 billion market. And when we come back, Dr. Pooja Lakshman, New York Times contributor and author of Real Self-Care, Crystals, Cleanses, and Bubble Baths, not included, is on a mission to expose faux self-care, and we're going to hear all about it. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. I am so delighted to have Pooja Lakshman with me today. Pooja is a psychiatrist specializing in women's health, a professor of psychiatry at the George Washington University of Medicine, the founder of Gemma, a digital community focused on women's mental health and equity. And most importantly, she is the author of a book that is on a mission to expose faux self-care. Welcome to the show, Busha. Thank you so much for having me, Lydia. So I would love to start at the beginning because I am just like you and I'm actually watching my daughters go through this incredible metamorphosis into complete and total obsession with skincare, self-care, all the things that is being peddled to them on a variety of different social media platforms. So how did you even get into this? Let's start with you as a child. Were you someone who loved self-care, who loved skincare? Tell me everything. Yeah. So I am going to be 40 in December. So I am a child of the 80s. So self-care was not a thing when I was growing up in the 80s or 90s. It just wasn't part of the zeitgeist. It wasn't part of the vocabulary. I think at that time, if I think back as a girl and a teenager kind of growing up, the biggest influences for me were those teen magazines that we had, like the sassy right? Cosmopolitan. Cosmo. (laughs) Cosmo. Yes, exactly. Tiger Beat Mm -hmm. or something like that. Right. So (laughs) I was really into kind of pop culture and fashion and that type of thing. And it was fun for me. I was one of those teenagers that had all of, you know, the pictures of like Leo DiCaprio, you know, Romeo and Juliet was my time. Right. right. I forgot about that. Yes. Such a good (laughs) movie. My childhood bedroom was just full of all of those pictures of all the stars. And I didn't really think about self-care growing up. I'm the daughter of immigrants. My parents came to the States from India. My father is is now retired, but he was a physician. My mom came when she was in her 20s. My upbringing was quite conservative. I was raised Hindu. I always kind of felt like I was living between two worlds. In what way? Well, kind of physically in that I grew up in Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half outside of Philadelphia in a upper middle class, mostly white suburban town. But then I would spend almost every summer in India with my mom's family, with my cousins and my aunts and uncles. And I, and I remember distinctly always feeling like torn because All my friends would be going to summer camp and, you know, doing the swim team. Mm -hmm. And I never had that summer experience. And so it felt like a loss and it made me feel different, right? It was weird. This was before the internet, 
right? Yeah. So I would send like letters in the mail to friends back home and it would take like a month to get there. You'd it's... arrive right in time for your letter to arrive. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but then on the other hand, those summers were amazing and I had so much fun with my family. And now I feel a very deep connection to that part of my culture and my background. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. The point I want to make is that because of my immigrant background and, and also, you know, kind of this Asian model minority kind of thing, I was just always so focused mm -hmm. on achieving and just wanting to win, you know, wanting to get the best grades, wanting to get into the best college. Like I just was very much sort of on that track. And the idea of like taking care of myself didn't fit into that equation. And when you say you were on this track, I mean, you mentioned that your dad was a physician. So was it always about medicine? Were you meant to be on that track, I guess, is the question? Or was this just yeah. something you saw? It's funny. It wasn't even a question. Sorry. It was just it was just assumed. <laughs> when you are a doctor. <laughs> right, right. When you are a doctor, when you get into an Ivy League college and go to medical school, like it didn't even need to be part of the conversation because it was just expected. And what did that feel like as a child? Did you resent it or were you just sort of on the river and floating along with the tide? I was on the river floating along. I didn't know to resent it. I didn't resent it until I was in my 20s. And then we can talk about that. <laughs> what that looked like. It felt like the hardest thing to do. Mm. So therefore, it was the best and right thing to do. So were you confident when you were little then? Did that come with confidence? You know, no, you're shaking your head. No, <laughs> no, no. I would not describe myself as confident as a child. I was independent. Mm -hmm. I really liked to take care of myself, do things for myself, understand things for myself. But I would not say that I was confident. I was always looking outwardly to define myself, mm -hmm. whether it was like my grades or what school I was trying to get into or, you know, who my friends were, or what clothes I was wearing. Right. It was very outward facing. And... I really wanted to fit in, Yeah, you know? I really wanted to be part of something. It's interesting, in my book, In Claim Your Confidence, I talk a lot about that, about how when we give the power to other people, we lose confidence. You know, when you're constantly looking around at everyone thinking, am I doing the right thing? Or asking people as if they have the answer to the keys to your life, you really are giving away your power. And ultimately you don't become more confident when you think that you have to get someone else's approval. You know, confidence is really something that comes from approving of what you're doing in your life, living your life authentically. And I think sometimes as a child, especially in those high school years, and I'm sure in a place where you didn't feel like you looked like everyone else, so it was harder to fit in. It's interesting. I'm sure that there were moments where you were like, oh, this is working out. And other moments where you're like, this is not working out at all. It's probably just high school in general. Absolutely. And I think for me too, I didn't have great models mm -hmm. of women who looked like me, who were doing big things. You know, my mom stayed at home mm -hmm. and I'm actually the first woman on my maternal side to go to grad school, to be a professional, to work outside the home professionally. So I didn't have kind of something inside my family or someone inside my family to guide me in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that impacts, you know, that makes it harder, more yeah. difficult. Because you're sort to of blazing kind of... the trail. Yes, yes. You know, you said that your mom didn't work outside of the home, but it's interesting because it was kind of a given for you that you were going to do that. And you'd mentioned sort of this immigrant ideal of going to the Ivy League school to going to the right business school or, or medical school. 
How does that work when your mom is not working, she's a stay-at-home mom, and then from a very early age, you're told, like, this is your path. It's got to be a really confusing message. (laughs) Yes, Lydia, it is very confusing. (laughs) It leads to a lot of internal conflict, which is why I'm just finishing actually my own psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis is the Olympics of therapy. It's the one where you lay on the couch and the therapist is behind you, like the Freudian old school. So I've been doing that for the past seven years and really diving into that conflict. Because yeah, it created so much confusion. I didn't know what the right path was. So part of my journey to where I am now has been having to resolve for myself who I am, what's important to me, what are my values. I'm never going to be somebody that cooks dinner. I'm actually never going to be somebody that cooks. Yeah, actually. <laughs> I should admit that too. Yeah. I also will never be able to leave New York City because unfortunately, I think everybody would starve because I don't know how to cook. But that's okay. You know, right, I bring other right. things to the table, I like to think, yes. and that's good too. But I do know what you mean. You know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was actually, as I said to you before, the person who started this podcast and has really been my role model my whole life. But there were a lot of things that felt very uncomfortable, especially when my career started to take off. And I I started to have children where I would sort of have these moments where I was like, wait, am I supposed to be doing this? Am I not supposed to be staying at home with my children 24-7 when in fact what fills me up is having a full adult life and a full adult life as a mom? And I think that those things are what truly have made me happy in my 40s. And my mom and I have had that conversation. And I remember one of the greatest gifts that she probably wouldn't even remember, but I know she listens to this, so now you'll know, mom, is that she said to me, I think probably five or six years ago, she said, it's so wonderful to see you love being a mom so much, but also having your own adult life. Hmm. And it really felt like a gift because there is a lot of guilt when you've seen that as your role model and you're like, oh God, my mom can kill a tablescape. And, you know, the Easter decorations were up (laughs) months before Easter. And, you know, I'm lucky if I can get those eggs in the basket the day of the night before Easter. I'm like, the bunny (laughs) rabbit is coming. I think don't get out of bed till 10 a.m. I've got to get to CVS. But I do think that that's really such a huge part of a lot of our experiences. And I hear this with women. I can't speak as a child of an immigrant, certainly, but I do know that that's a common theme amongst a lot of women, especially women who work outside of the home, just on a day-to-day basis. So thank you for sharing that. Did you follow that path then? You went to high school, you went to, where did you go to college? Did you go to an Ivy League? Yeah, I went, yeah. <laughs> uh, I went to Penn. Check. Oh, yeah. Right. right. I've um, heard of it. And, you know, it's a valedictorian in my high school class, oh, you know, you. <laughs> went to Penn, was pre-med, killed it in pre-med, you know, Phi Beta Kappa. Oh my gosh. Also, I was actually a double major. So I also majored in women's studies, which was kind of my fun passion. Yeah major and those classes were always so much more fun for me than, you know, the organic chemistry. Unfortunately, I was good at organic chemistry. So I kept getting A's in all the pre-med classes. (laughs) It's hard Um, to stop when you're getting that positive affirmation, I'm sure, you know, right? it's like, I don't really like this, but I am good at it. So, right. And I got into medical school. Right. And so it was like, this was just the path. So I was like checking all the boxes. I got into medical school and then I matched at a top program for psychiatry. I got married. I found myself then in my late 20s, kind of like, okay, well, I've checked everything. I've checked all the boxes. And that was the first time that I said to myself, okay, well, now I can figure out how to be happy. Oh, interesting. So you had everything and yet you're sitting at the top of the mountain and you're like, this isn't it. Right. 
yeah, it, this isn't it. Well, and it didn't even occur to me that it, this isn't it. It was just kind of like, okay, well, now the next thing on the checklist is to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> when in fact, like having a fulfilling career and being married to somebody who you felt like was an equal partner, I'm sure, had never really occurred to you as not being what would what it would take to be happy. Yeah, I thought that once you got all the things, yeah. right, as we're talking about like claiming your confidence, I thought that once you got all the things, then confidence, happiness, all of those good feelings came after. Yeah. Now I know, as I'm almost 40, that it's the other way around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So when you were a female physician, what did that feel like for you? You were going to see patients every day. I mean, what was your day to day at that point? And how were you feeling these feelings kind of manifest in that? Yeah. So I was in my psychiatry residency. And just for some context, you know, to become a physician is this very long assembly line of hoops that you have to jump through. So you have to do the pre-med classes in college, take the MCATs, get into medical school, which is four years. And then you do four to six years of residency training where you're in the classroom, but you're also in the, like on the wards, in the hospital, in the clinics. And so it was my second year in actually in the hospital. And I had a really hard time reconciling the fact that as a doctor, I couldn't fix all of my patients' problems. Oh, interesting. Because I had gone into it very, again, like kind of cookie cutter following all the rules. I had never worked in the real world. So mm -hmm. it was always like it was undergrad to med school to residency. So I had this very naive view of medicine. Like I really thought that I had gotten all the degrees. So now I should be able to fix everyone's problems. But I very quickly realized like, you know, if somebody comes into the ER and they are unhoused, I can give them Zoloft, but I can't get them housing. I don't know how to create a housing program, right? Like that's, that's yeah, out it's of like, my it's just You can only fix range. the medical part. You can't fix the rest of their life in exactly. that short window that you see them. Or from what I was passionate about, which was women's mental health, you know, seeing these women women who were highly educated and kind of had had similar trajectories to me in terms of doing all the things that you were supposed to in life, but then still not feeling happy. And to me, it didn't feel like a medication was necessarily the answer. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of started questioning everything. And how is this taking form? Is this just you kind of in there in, in a mind cycle where you're just thinking like, what am I doing? This is not what I thought this was going to be. Or was this you voicing this to other people? Were these internal or external questions? It was both. I was asking questions of my supervisors, my attendings, the people who were the physicians who were kind of the in charge of the residents and you know, kind of asking questions about, well, how do you make this decision? How do you know that this person's diagnosis is X, Y, Z? Or why does the insurance company, you know, pay for such and such diagnosis, but not the other one? And I wasn't getting great answers. Mm -hmm. And I became really angry. And I started to blame medicine. You know, I was kind of like, I don't believe in this anymore. And at the same time, I was, you know, questioning my marriage and my relationship. And, it all kind of basically, I mean, long story short, I just sort of blew it all up because What do you mean? Of... You just left and you I'm like, explain <laughs> blow it up. I need more yes, I need yes, more yes, details yes. here. Yes, <laughs> yes. I left my marriage. I blew up my marriage and moved into a wellness commune in San Francisco. And how did you come across a wellness commune in San Francisco? Were you living in San Francisco at the time? 
I was living outside of San Francisco in the Bay Area. Okay. And I stumbled upon a TED Talk that the person who founded this organization had given. And then I'd heard about the organization from different folks and they were teaching a class and and there was an OBGYN who was co-leading the class. This group was all about meditation and spirituality and sexuality, specifically women's sexuality. So it was like this very empowering message and group of people on the surface. And just given my background and how disillusioned I was feeling with mainstream medicine, I just immediately dove in. And pretty quickly after that, fled my residency program and was just kind of like, I'm going all in with this group of people. And I spent two years with the group. Two years. And what did you find when you were there? Did you find the happiness you were seeking at that point? Temporarily. Mm -hmm. That's where my whole framework for real self-care comes from in that this group in the beginning, I had that kind of sugar high of confidence and purpose and feeling like I was finally had found belonging. But after a period of time, the same thing started happening. I started to have questions, to ask questions, to find inconsistencies Mm -hmm. and not feel satisfied with the answers. And ultimately I left. Upon leaving, I kind of understood, and I should say, you know, it also took me years of therapy to get to this place, but, you know, that kind of understood that alternative medicine, the wellness world has the same hypocrisies and inconsistencies as mainstream medicine. Like you can't outsource the decision-making in your life. There's no guru, there's no secret workout plan, There's also no secret like life coach or business coach or wellness retreat that is going to fix everything. There's tools, right? And there's varying degrees of safety of those tools. When I say safety, I mean psychological safety. Um, Each of those things, you have to know what they're for and how they might help you and do the critical decision making yourself. Mm -hmm. You can't expect that once you kind of find an external solution, that that's going to fix everything. You had a great quote that said, you can't fix the inner workings of your life with a face mask. And I thought that that was a really good representation of the wellness industry at large. You know, if you put on the sheet mask and you go to bed right now, you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to look great. But that's actually not really what it is. Like, yes, your face might look a little bit better, but if you don't like who you're looking at in the mirror then that's really the core problem, right? Yes. And I think it's insidious because if you say to somebody, do you think this face mask is going to change your life? They're going to say, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. But when you buy the face mask and you're putting the face mask on, we rarely take the time to step back and sort of reflect on what our fantasies are. Yeah of what this could bring, what our idealized version is. And for a lot of women, because especially if you're in that phase of life where you maybe have kids and, you know, you're working a very busy job and and maybe you're taking care of elderly parents, right? You're just so, you don't have the time. You feel like you don't have the time to step back and really think about what this product is going to do for you and what your expectations are. So yeah, one of the other things I like to say is that you can't meditate your way out of a 40-hour work week with no childcare. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it doesn't matter (laughs) how much meditation you do, that's never going to work. And I think that that's also comes to the area that we discuss so much in 
this podcast and frankly, I feel like in conversations with my friends all the time about where we are in the world and the expectations of women at this point coming out of the pandemic and just being able to show up for yourself being such a huge part of it, but also being able to do that because you have support to do it, which is a huge part of this. So you're going through all of this and you talked about your parents a lot at the beginning. What were your parents thinking? Like, what was that like? Because that must have been an interesting dynamic for your parents to watch, having had these expectations that you'd fulfilled, seeing you as unhappy, and then you coming into a completely different version of yourself. Were you seeing them a lot? Was this something you were discussing openly with them? I love that you said interesting, that my parents would have thought that this is interesting because that's a very generous <laughs> interpretation of what they thought. <laughs> your parents are listening um, to this like, oh, interesting's not the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'll be totally frank. It was a really hard time in yeah. my relationship with my whole family. Yeah. Nobody understood. Uh, nobody understood. And I felt a lot of shame. I felt like I had betrayed them. But I, I also felt like I needed to do this. Yeah. I needed to find my own way. Um, so we didn't talk for a lot of that time. And I think I needed that because... That space. Exactly, exactly. And now more than a decade later, we're in... A much better space and and i have a son who is a toddler and i get to see them as grandparents and and you know it's i think because we had that rupture we were able to repair and and they can now see me as an independent person yeah and see that my decisions aren't a reflection of of them yeah that they're a reflection of me i also want to caveat this by just also acknowledging that, you know, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. I sincerely believe they did everything that they thought was best for me. You know, they are, were immigrants to America. They, you know, being a physician is a very stable, prestigious career. Like yeah. they wanted that for me because they believed that it was something that would make my life a good life, which is not wrong. Yeah, I'm able to do all of the things that I do now, you know, writing, speaking, consulting, and, and seeing patients, which I love doing because I am a doctor and because I stuck with it. Yeah. And so they weren't wrong. It was just that I needed the space to wrestle and to question and to fight and then to figure it out for myself. It's such an interesting point about parenting. And I have three children who are six, nine, and 11. And I truly think it's the hardest job in the world. You know, I, I always say to my husband, I'm like, I wonder what the kids are going to say about us when we're older. You know, don't <laughs> to you? To their want... therapist. I know, I know. <laughs> As I say something or do something, I'm like, I wonder how that's going to pan out later in life. But <laughs> I think we all do the best we can and you can only do based on what you know. And yep. I truly think that that's being a parent. I don't think anyone's perfect. I don't think anyone knows what they're doing. I mean, I certainly don't feel like I know what I'm doing half the time, but you do your best and you know, probably the greatest gift that you've had with your parents at this point, I should think, is that you did start to live an independent life. Because if you are happy now, which is what you've been seeking this whole time, that's probably the greatest gift. And however you got there is a result of the upbringing that took you to the point where you actually felt empowered to blow everything up and start again. And that I think is a huge part of life is making those mistakes. And I wonder if you feel more confident now on the other side of all of that. And as you sit here with a microphone on a podcast and you have this incredible career and we're going to dive into your book and everything like that. But I wonder if you feel confident in who you are now that you aren't seeking external support or not even external support, just external affirmation. Yeah. Yeah. The short answer is yes and. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> both and, as whomever says. Yeah. In that I know who I am. Yeah. 
And I think that's a big piece of what we call and define as confidence, Mm -hmm. knowing who you are and what is for you and what is not for you and not having judgment about it, being sort of value neutral about decisions, whether it is decisions in your career, decisions about how much money you want to make, decisions about whether you want to get married and have a life partner or become a mother or not become a mother, right? All these huge choices that over the course of a life and and especially as a woman come up, that you're knowing who you are in making that decision and believing that that's okay. You know, as I've been on this book tour for Real Self Care, one of the things that keeps coming up for me is this idea of risk. You know, Brene Brown talks about courage and and I think courage is so important. Being willing to take risks Mm -hmm. is important. It's related to that. Also with the caveat that there's a lot of privilege that's involved with being able to take risks. When I say privilege, I mean financial privilege. You know, I didn't have loans for medical school because of all the sacrifices that they had made for the sake of their children. Yeah which then enabled me to blow up my life. And yeah, (laughs) right. But I'm sure there's guilt associated with that too. You know, you're like, oh, they did all of these things. I should continue to do that. But at the end of the day, that was their choice. You know, yes, yes, yes. something my friend often says about parenting. She's like, every choice you make is your choice. Your children have nothing to do with that until they're able to make those choices on their own. So whether it be financial, whether it be social, like that's your choice. And that was their choice. Getting back to your question of sort of, do I feel more confident now because of all of that? I think that the risk piece is you have to be willing to take the risks to earn the confidence. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we earn the confidence. It's not something that just comes unless you're one of those really lucky people that was confident from the beginning, yeah. but, you know. Point 0.1% of the my, people. <laughs> as a, right, as a psychiatrist, I will say that it does tend to be the folks who were not confident in the beginning who go on to do really big things. And that usually does come from a place of trauma. Interesting, trauma. Okay. Little t trauma or big T trauma, right? Like there is, when you have some type of wound, Mm. and when I say wound, it doesn't need to be a big wound, but something about your childhood experience that made it feel a little bit hard, then you're more likely to be seeking something from the outside and then feel like you need to prove yourself and then, you know, kind of striving. Mm. Somebody who from the beginning is feeling confident doesn't feel like they need to do all that work, mm-hmm. which again, we're trying to be non-judgmental here. You know, that's not, that's fine too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I guess I would urge folks who are listening, because a lot of this is about motivation, right? And what are you trying to get from achieving your goals mm-hmm. and making sure that the goals that you've set out for yourself are actually internally aligned? That's a great point, yeah. So speaking of internal alignment, you went back and graduated from your residency and joined the faculty at George Washington University School of Medicine. So did that make you happy? Did you start to feel like you were coming into your own when you did that? Yes. And the reason that it felt good was because I finally was doing it on my own terms Mm -hmm. in real time. So not just because of everything that I'd gone through. Uh, in blowing up my life and and leaving the cult and all that stuff. But also because when I came back to medicine, I no longer 
gave my power away to my mentors. Mm -hmm. I understood that I was the only person who could decide what the right path was for me. Mm -hmm. And of course, all my mentors wanted me to stay in academia and stay in the ivory tower and rise the ranks and because that was what they did and that's what they thought was best for me. But I took everyone else's advice with a little grain of salt. And thought, what do I want to do? What do I want? And again, not that anybody was coming from a malicious no. side, right? Just like suggestions, and, and all of those yeah. right, all of those lives are great. Yeah. Right. Like all of those choices are valid. But I finally knew that it was up to me to decide yeah. what the right life was. And so then I, I was on the full-time faculty for three years and did research in global mental health. I got a chance to go back to Bangalore where my family's from and do a research study at basically their version of the NIH. And it was really, really fulfilling. I did it for three years, but I realized in that time that one, I don't like managing people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not an easy part of the job, that's for sure. Right. I was the associate program director for the residency. So part of my job was having to, you know, work with the residents and discipline residents and all these types of things. I was like, I don't want to do that. And I realized also that my talent was not in academic writing. My talent was in writing for folks who are not academics or mm -hmm. mental health professionals. Like what I loved doing was talking to my patients. That's what I really liked doing. But academic work is all about research or kind of climbing the ranks to become the chairman. So it's really the outward-facing like, and the, yeah. the sort of person, the one-on-one. -on -one. And this manifested itself in an Instagram account, right? And then yes, you yes. wrote a blog and then ultimately you became a New York Times contributor, which obviously made that seem very easy. And I'm sure that there was a <laughs> lot of work that went into that. But did you find like you were really, was that your voice finally coming out? And in a way yes. that felt very much you. Coming back to that idea of risk mm -hmm. and how risk plays into confidence, I negotiated with the department to work around my non-compete so that I could start a small private practice and focus on women's mental health mm -hmm. and also keep the part of academics that I did enjoy, which was supervising the residents a couple times a month and you know teaching them about women's mental health and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. That's what I do in my clinical practice. So I kept that. And then I also pursued Instagram, putting myself out there, using my voice. And, and actually, um, I, I spent probably close to a year and a half working really hard at Instagram, yeah. which it's funny. I'm like judging myself a little bit as I say that, because I'm sure that if anybody from the ivory tower is listening, they're gonna be like working really hard at oh, Instagram. I, <laughs> I have a friend who literally summed it up best. She's like, it has taken blood, sweat and tears for every single follower. And she was laughing. She's like, I have 2000 followers. <laughs> and it was so funny, but she's right. I've watched her create it, but she started at zero and everybody starts somewhere. And I do think that social media, if you are looking for a platform to amplify your message is really the easiest free way to do it. If you don't mind putting in the work. If the work is fun, which it was for me and it was values aligned. And that's how, that's actually how I started writing for the New York times. They found me on Instagram and then that led to my book deal. So let's um, talk about your book cover and the title of it, which I just think is so genius. Real self-care, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. And it really sums it up in such a great way. So tell us what brought you to write the book and tell us a little bit about the book. 
the book is really a culmination of this whole decade long or probably even, yeah, 40, I'm going to be 40, this whole journey that we've just discussed. <laughs> the book is sort of like all of the wisdom and the pearls that I have learned personally and professionally. And what I'm doing is I'm turning wellness kind of inside out. And I'm saying that it's actually less important whether you decide to do yoga versus soul cycle versus a gratitude journal, that the real self-care is the decision-making process mm -hmm. that you take to get to that thing. So you can imagine that one person goes to a yoga class and they spend the whole time kind of in their head, worried that they're not wearing the right Lululemon leggings. Yeah. And maybe like the person next to you can like hold a headstand and maybe you like still can't do crow pose. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I cannot do crow one... pose. I can't do any <laughs> <Me neither>. yoga. <laughs> But then maybe there's another person, right, who goes to yoga and they've done real self-care. They've set boundaries with their partner or their family to have help so they can take that hour to go to class. They're compassionate with their self, with themselves. And so they're not beating themselves up the whole time for not being able to do crow pose. They have named their values and they understand that yoga helps them feel embodied, mm -hmm. helps them feel a sense of physicality. And they understand that this is power, that taking this time out actually is exerting power and agency. And they're present, mm. they're there, and they're fully taking in the nourishment that can come with yoga. So those are two wildly different experiences of the same yoga class. Yeah. So my message in Real Self Care is that it's actually about the stuff that comes before. Yeah that determines whether the wellness activity is gonna work for you. And the compass that you should be using, which Lydia, I know you talk about too in your book, is your own internal values. Yeah. Like that's the key that gets you there. If our listeners today are nodding as they're thinking about this and truly thinking about the fact that they're probably the person who's wondering whose yoga pants are next to them during this <laughs> yoga class, unable to do crow pose. What would you say is one thing that they can take away from listening to this that they can do today? Because I think sometimes it feels a little overwhelming when someone comes at you with a list of ways that you can change your life. So what is one thing that you would say that people could take away from this conversation and start doing today, which you think will fundamentally help them? in their life. So the first principle of real self-care is boundaries. Mm. Setting boundaries and understanding how to set boundaries is the most important first step. Everything else comes after that. And my conceptualization of boundaries is actually a little bit different than a lot of other therapists that are on social media. And I came to this actually in 2016 when I had an aha moment starting on the faculty at GW, my mentor took me out for lunch on my first day of work. And she was like, Pooja, my piece of advice is that you don't need to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail, listen to what they want, and then decide how to respond. So the boundary is the pause. It's the pause. And then you can decide yes, no, or negotiate. Interesting. There's always a cost to no. Mm financial, emotional, and depending on the amount of resources you have, your socioeconomic circumstances, you might not be able to say no right at the second, but you can still pause mm -hmm. and think through what your options are and what's available to you. And then if no is not available, then you make a mental note for yourself and say, okay, six months from now, 
I want to be closer to being able to say no. So not punishing yourself at that moment, but actually giving yourself grace and time to create that space and to create that pause. I love that. I do think that boundaries is one of those things that we all struggle with in life, whether it be friendships or work or family or whatever it might be. And taking ownership of that really, as we talked about before, helps you find that North Star on your compass. And when you truly believe that you have the ability and because it is your life and you are living your life's journey and your life's mission, you have the ability to say, I'm going to just hold for a second and figure this out. I don't need to react to everything the way that we're taught, you know, an email hits, you got to answer it. No, you actually don't have to answer it. You can spend the time thinking about it and giving yourself a little grace if you need it in order to get to a place where the yes feels better than the no. Well, Pooja, this has been such a fantastic conversation. Can you tell us where we can find you, where we can find your book, what we should be looking for next? Yeah. So the book is called Real Self-Care. Like you mentioned, it is in all the places that you can buy books. There's also an audio book that I narrated. So if you like to listen to your books, that's available too. I have a free email newsletter on Substack that's called Therapy Takeaway, (laughs) therapytakeaway therapytakeaway.substack.com. My website is poojalakshman.com. And I'm also on Instagram at poojalakshman. And what's next? You know, I am in a pause. I'm taking that pause for myself right now after a hugely successful book launch and really a new phase of my career and really looking internally to figure out what's right for me in this new phase and what I really want and what's values aligned as opposed to just kind of chasing the next shiny thing that comes into my email inbox. (laughs) Well, that's good advice for us all. And I know after this pause, we will all be waiting with bated breath to see what comes next, but enjoy the pause, relax into the pause and obviously enjoy the toddlerhood because I know that's its own own conversation, which we didn't even touch. So I like to leave everyone with a question. And this week's question is, what are you doing to achieve balance in your life? Think of one thing that you can do this week to find some balance. Let Dr. Pooja know, drop me a DM. We're both active on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And before I wrap up this podcast, I also wanna share some really exciting news. I wanna give you guys a teaser for season two. As you guys know, I have two brothers and a really strong father who have had a huge influence over the course of my life, as has my mother and my sister. One thing I know, having grown up with that family dynamic, is that women do not have the corner on insecurity, and we're not the only ones who struggle with confidence. And so I thought it might be fun to mix up season two a little bit and invite one of my really good guy friends to kick off the season in order to talk a little bit about the confidence journey. Season two, which starts at the beginning of February, kicks off with Henrik Lundqvist. He was the goalie for the New York Rangers. He is an incredible man, but in addition to that, He was at the top of his game when he found out that his heart condition was never going to allow him to play hockey again. So I have a million questions I want to ask him. I know that you guys are going to really enjoy this, and I cannot wait to introduce a whole new series of guests as we embark on season two of Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. Tune in again next Tuesday for our next episode. Have a wonderful week.